listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Good to be here with all of you this morning. Uh, we're going to be in the book of John, chapter 3, this morning together. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can turn there. Or if you use your phone or a tablet, maybe you brought a scroll, whatever you use to look at the Bible during church, that's, what, uh, that's the passage we'll be in, John chapter 3. We'll look at verses 1 through 15 together. Uh, for those who might be new uh, today, visiting with us, maybe it's your first time with us, looking around the crowd, see if I see who is here, connect to all of you. Uh, my name is Keith. I'm one of the guys that's on staff here. Our pastor Mark and his wife Mandy have been up in North Georgia this week with their grandkids. Uh, their parents are out of town, so Mark and Mandy have been on grandparent duty this week, and so I just want to take a moment. We should all just a moment of silence to pray for those grandkids that Mark and Mandy have been with all week, and uh, we can pray for them this morning as we jump into this. So I'm, uh, I have the privilege of being able to be here uh, together with you today. And I'm looking forward to our time together. Last week, Michael was here with us to look at the book of Daniel. We've closed out. We've been in the series uh, in the book of Daniel for, for a while now. And Michael was here, and he closed us out in, uh, in that book. And I really enjoyed that time together. It's been a, a great time studying the book of Daniel together. For me personally, it, it's been a great deal. And next week, we'll go into the Easter season. I'm going to grab this stool back here. Next week, we'll go into the Easter season and I'm looking forward to that as well. So today we actually were kind of in between series from Daniel going into Easter. And then after Easter, we're going to do something that I'm really looking forward to as well. We're going to be in the book of John, uh, not going verse by verse necessarily through the whole book, but looking at the seven I am statements in the book of John. So if you're familiar with John, John's a different book than the other three gospels. And in John, there are seven miracles that Jesus performs that, we, that we're told specifically about. There's other miracles that he performs uh, but very specific one, seven of those. And there's seven I am statements that Jesus says, where he says, I am uh, the bread of life, or I am, and he's making this reference back to the Old Testament to saying, I am God, I am Yahweh. And so I'm looking forward to that series as we go through that. There are no parables in the book of John. And so it's very interesting. The book of John actually follows several conversations that Jesus has very specifically with different people or these miracles that he does with these different people. And I'm looking forward to the series, uh, the I am series uh, through that, because in Czech Republic, this is something that we'd actually do pretty often with different people that we would invite to read the Bible with us together. So we were meeting with atheists for the most part. Czech Republic is one of the most atheistic countries in the world. And so we would always find it an incredible privilege if we would invite someone, a Czech person or someone that was living in Czech Republic to read scripture with us. And a lot of times we would start in Genesis because they did they didn't have any context. They've never read the Bible before. They didn't have a context of what it meant to be a Christian or who God was. They didn't, they're as atheists or agnostics, they didn't believe that there was a God. And so we would, sometimes though, we would do a series where we would start with the I am statements. And the reason we would do that, we would just do a teaser just to see what their interest was and see if they would be curious at all to read the Bible with us. And as we would read the seven I am statements, one of the things that most of the time that they would pull out, these are people who have never read the Bible together, They've never looked at scripture. They had no idea what's going on, and they were reading this for the first time, and they would come to John chapter 6, where we would start with the I am statements, I am the bread of life. And they would read it, and they, they would always say, they've never read the Bible before, and they would look at it, and they would say, Jesus and the people in the story are on two different wavelengths. Right? 
Jesus is talking about something spiritual. He's talking about something here. But the people are stuck in their mentality on something that is physical. So they're on two different wavelengths. And it was always fun to kind of see that they had the ability to look at Scripture and see right away that these people were on uh, different wavelengths, that Jesus was talking about spiritual things, and they were talking about physical things. And they would often be curious, did they ever get connected? Did they ever do... They never come together on that. So I don't want to get ahead of ourselves talking about the I am statements, uh, but you you might be familiar. I am the bread of life is the first one that we'll get into uh, in a few weeks. So I'm looking forward to that, that when Jesus is talking about himself, he's inviting them to him, but they were looking only at their physical circumstances. So we'll look at that in a couple of weeks. I bring that up because when we're looking at the book of Daniel, one of the things that we see is that Daniel had the ability to see into the spiritual realm. He was able to go into heaven and get a uh, perspective of what was going on on earth from heaven's perspective. And that was an incredible thing for me to be able to see as Daniel did that, what it did in him. When I think about the book of Daniel, I always think about uh, Daniel's courage and his boldness and his ability to be faithful. But as we went through it this time, one of the things I began to see is Daniel's humility and the way that he actually engaged with other people, that there was a tenderness about him that moved him towards others that kept him not just faithful, not just with courage, but it also held them to a certain amount of humility that his heart towards others and his heart heart posture towards other people. So his ability to see things from a spiritual realm gave him the ability to not just be courageous and stay faithful, but it also gave him the ability to stay uh, humble and to have humility towards other people that he worked with. So as we look at John, we're going to see that uh, Jesus is bringing this heavenly perspective as he comes that, there's a, that Daniel had a privilege to see a reality that was actually bigger than Babylon. He saw that there was a future kingdom that is going to even be better than the current Jerusalem. And in the meantime, he was able to live with a greater hope. He was able to live with a greater hope than, the, than better circumstances now. That he gave him a courage to stay faithful as he lived in the present. Because the king of, kingdom of Babylon is not the ultimate kingdom. And there is a greater kingdom that Daniel could see that he was a part of, a reality that is defined by heaven. There's a reality that is defined, a reality is defined by heaven. Spiritual reality is not defined by earth. Are you with me on that? Reality is defined by heaven. Spiritual reality is not defined by earth. But if we cannot see the spiritual, if we cannot see from heaven's perspective, then the only reality we have is our senses that we have within us right now. So I want to look at uh, the book of John. We're going to read through the first 15 verses together. Uh, But before we get into John chapter 3, 1, I want to actually start in John chapter 2 and verse 23. So if you can just scroll back up or turn uh, the page back up to John chapter 2, starting in verse 23. Everybody with me? All right. (laughs) So Jesus has already come onto the scene. We know that when he shows up, John the Baptist, he's been baptized by this time. John the Baptist is pointed to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There would have been a group of people that would have seen that. Jesus has now, uh, he's already performed his first miracle, and people are starting to be curious about who he is. And now he's come into Jerusalem. This is where we pick up in verse 23. He comes to Jerusalem, and it's about this time of the year. So here we are uh, coming into April, just this next week. It's about this time of the year that Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's at the Passover feast, and many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him because what did he know about people? What does it say? What did he know about people? What is that? 
What did he know about people? What does it say? He knew what was in their heart, right? He knew what was going on inside of them. He knew what their thoughts were. He knew what they desired. He knew where they were. For he himself knew what was in man. And so as we think about that, we can think about, you know, as we go into the, uh, John chapter 3 and he's meeting with Nicodemus, we can know that Jesus knew what was in Nicodemus' heart. And that's good to remember as we read this story because it's going to sound like Jesus and Nicodemus are having two different conversations. But Jesus knows what's going on in Nicodemus' heart. So John chapter 3, verse 1 says this. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. If you're new to the Bible or to church, it might be helpful to know who the Pharisees are before we go any further. I'm not going to stop and explain every verse at the beginning. We're going to read through the rest of it. But it would be very helpful before we read any further who the Pharisees were, and especially the ruler of the Jews. So in that day, the Pharisees were, uh, they were the religious leaders, right? They were the guys that you would look to that they knew uh, the scripture really well. They were the religious leaders of the day. There were about 6,000 of them. Uh, I looked that up online. I read on the internet, so I'm pretty sure that's true. But uh, everywhere I read, it said there was about 6,000 of them at the time of Jesus. So out of all the population of uh, the Jewish people, you've got about 6,000 of these, these religious leaders. They were very elitist. They were separatist. They believed they wanted to keep themselves holy. And in order to do that, uh, they devoted themselves to knowing the word of God. At this time, that would have been the Old Testament. They devoted themselves to knowing that. They were highly educated. They were actually very well respected by other people because of how they lived their lives and because of what they knew. They knew the word of God very well. If you want to, on Old, uh, Old Testament trivia night, these were the guys that were going to win every time. They knew it. They had the stuff. These guys are going to win. They were actually, they were very strict in carrying out the law. But not only that, they were very strict on carrying out extra laws. We got any rule followers in here? All right. They love, they were, all right, there's one. I see that hand. Hands all across the auditorium. All right, thank you, thank you. All right. So they were rule followers. They loved they loved rules, and they, they didn't just love the rules that they could read about. They loved coming up with even more rules. They were probably the kind of people that had a to-do list every day, and at the end of their day, if they did more things that were on the to-do list, they would add it to the to-do list. Anybody like that? Yeah, don't raise your hand, because that will hurt my heart. All right. So they were very strict. Uh, they were very devoted to their rules. They made up more rules. They loved rules, right? And Jesus would say about them later, he goes, you're just making up laws that are not not even in the Bible. And not only are you doing that, you're treating the laws that you make up that are not in the Bible as if they were doctrine, as if they were in the Bible. Does that make sense? Yeah. So they love doing that. And they actually, they put more emphasis on the rules that they made up than the rules that were actually, the laws that were actually in the Bible. So they were very well-educated, very well-behaved religious leaders of their day. Not only was Nicodemus one of those guys, well-educated, well-behaved religious leader, it says that he was a ruler of the Jews. And what uh, that means is that he was, uh, more than likely what this means is that he was a part of the Sanhedrin. This was a group of people that were in the judicial system. You can think about Supreme Court. There were about 70 of these guys that would be a part of that council, plus the high priest. So not only was he a part of the elite group of the Pharisees, he was also a part of the special elite group of the Sanhedrin, the, uh, the, um, the people that would be over the judicial system of the Jewish people. And that's not all about Nicodemus. We'll say more about him later, but that's important to know as we kind of go into the, to this text. All right, so this is a little bit about Nicodemus. So verse 2, and we'll read from verse 2 through, through verse 15. So this man, Nicodemus, 
came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man be lifted up must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And there's a lot, like we said, to unpack here. We're not going to get into all of this in our time together, but there are a few things that I would love to point out as we, as we look closer at this, especially as we keep in mind this idea that there is a reality, that spiritual reality is more real. Heaven's reality is more real than our physical, what we in our senses sense. And that our ability to be able to see that is key to the way that we follow Christ, right? So we're already seeing in these verses that Nicodemus was a religious leader and who was a part of this special group and their councils. But in verse 2, it says that man came to Jesus by night. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So this guy's an elite guy, right? Not only is he a Pharisee, not only is he a part of the Sanhedrin, later it says that he was the teacher uh, the teacher of the Jews. And, you know, sometimes we can look at that and go, this is a really high compliment that Nicodemus is paying Jesus. He's calling him one, he's calling him rabbi. They would have been from a totally different social status, right? They would have been totally different in their education system. They would have been totally different in their uh, economic status. And so G- uh, Nicodemus starts off with somewhat of a compliment, but I think he's seeing the miracles that Jesus is doing, saying this guy's not normal. I need to get to know him more. I need to find out what he knows, I think Nicodemus would have loved learning. And here's a guy that maybe could teach me something. I need to figure out what's going on. So Nicodemus shows him a lot of respect by calling him rabbi. He calls him a teacher from God, and that's a pretty high compliment. In verse 10, Jesus calls Nicodemus the teacher of Israel. So this man has the answers that people come to when they want to know what's going on because he knows stuff about stuff, right? He knows his stuff. When I was in uh, Texas, I had just arrived. I was in my early 20s. I went on staff with the church there. And uh, we were looking at me becoming ordained. And so the pastor of the church said, yeah, we, we, we want to ordain you, but we need to take you through this process to make sure you know the Bible very well and know doctrine and know theology and all that. And he handed me this folder. And in this folder, there's a lot of information, but there were six pages, single typed, literally typed. It was on a typewriter back in those days that I was given this piece of paper from. And it was six pages of single line, one, I forget how many questions are on these six pages. And I was going to have to be able to answer those six pages of questions. 
And I was reading through that list, and I thought, I don't understand the questions, much less understand how to answer the questions. And I was dumbfounded because I would go into a Bible school, and I graduated with a ministry degree. So I go to my pastor, and I said, I don't understand the questions. He said, okay, well, that's a problem. How do we hire you? All right, so, but that's, neither of us are here. But there was a guy in our church, and he was the Bible answer man. He had a radio show, and you could call him up, and people would call him on the radio show and ask him questions about the Bible, and he would answer those questions. He was very knowledgeable. And he was kind of like this. He was the Bible answer man. That's what his nickname was. That's who we called him. So they said, all right, we want you to meet with him, and, and he'll help you answer and learn and all that. You'll spend a lot of time with the Bible answer man, and he'll help you learn how to answer these uh, questions. And I said, this is great. I'm going to be discipled. I'm going to learn a lot, and I'm going to spend some time with the Bible answer man. So after about a year of hard work, and very intense study, he said, okay, I think we're finally ready. Now that you understand what the questions mean, I think we can actually start answering some of these questions. I was a very slow learner. It took a while. So that was my uh, time of doing that. And after, I forget how many years it was before they were like, I think you're ready to, we can ordain you now. But it took a while. But Nicodemus, he had good reasoning skills. And he reasons in this that God must be with Jesus because of the miracles he saw. He saw. Nicodemus is putting one-to-one together. But he doesn't come up with the whole answer. He just sees the miracles and he thinks this man's different, but he doesn't say at this point, he doesn't say this is the Messiah. And I think it's interesting because the next verse, in verse three, it says, Jesus answered him. What was the question that Nicodemus had asked? Anybody know it? You need a Bible answer man in here. What's the, yeah, use the Bible answer man. All right, what's the question? We don't know. It doesn't actually have a question that Nicodemus proposes to him. He just compliments him. And Jesus kind of just skips by that idea that he's been complimented or that Nicodemus is uh, what he says in the, in the beginning. And I think this is one because Jesus knew what was in his heart, and he just cuts to the chase. And he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly. We know from uh, Scripture that this means, that this is very important. Pay attention. Listen up. Nicodemus, I'm going to tell you something that you really need to hear. This is very important. Whatever you were bringing to me before, this is what you really need to hear. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus completely misses the point, and there are two different wavelengths as we go into this, right? Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into the mother's womb? What wavelength is Jesus speaking on? Spiritual things, eternal things. What wavelength is Nicodemus on? physical things. It's like, hold on. I don't understand what you're talking about here. Nicodemus was confused. Jesus had told him in order to see the kingdom of God, he would need to be born again, but that, that's impossible. Nicodemus was a man who would have been knowledgeable about the promised kingdom from the Old Testament, from the prophets. Nicodemus was a man who would have believed deeply that he, of all people, was ready to be one of the ones ready for the kingdom. He had been preparing his whole life to be the type of well-behaved, well-educated person that when the Messiah did come, that he would be in. He would be ready for the kingdom. Does that make sense? Nicodemus had been working his whole life to be the type of person that would have been ready when the Messiah came, to be ready for the kingdom. When the Messiah came, he would be in. He knew it. If this was the time, he was ready. He had done everything he needed to do. Pharisees also put a lot of emphasis on the fact that they were born from Abraham and they were born into the right genealogy. They were born into the right family. But there's a problem. This guy, Jesus, just told him that, that that's not it. If knowledge could get you in, he would be in. 
If information could get you in, he would be in. If good behavior, being good, being a rule follower could get you in, he would be in. If being from the right family could get you in, he would be in. If going to a Christian school could get you in, he would be in. He would be a great asset to the kingdom, but those things, Jesus was saying, wouldn't get you to the kingdom. This is very confusing for him. And here's what I think he's kind of dawning on him. And as I read this, I realize you can know the Bible by heart. You can know the Bible by heart, but not believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God. There are a few important things to notice in the statement that Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In the Greek, the word again can also mean above, right? So unless he is born again, the word again could also mean from above. Unless he is born from heaven, some translations put it. Even though the English and the ESV uses the word again, here we see that Jesus is, is actually talking about a spiritual rebirth, a spiritual regeneration, that we would call it. In the next couple of verses, we see that very clearly, that he's talking about a spiritual rebirth. There is a need to be reborn from a completely different place in a completely different way than how you were born the first time. In Paul's letters, he would put it this way. You need to be born from a different seed. If you have an apple seed, in the apple seed is the DNA of apples. Good. Right. It's going to produce what the DNA is there. And if the apple tree doesn't want to be an apple tree anymore and he decides, hey, I actually want to be a peach tree, it would be really hard. He couldn't tweak his way to peachness. He couldn't learn his way to peachness. He would have to be something totally different. What would he have to be? He'd have to to start as a peach seed, right? He would have to be a new type of seed. He would have to be a new type of nature. He would have to have a new DNA. If you want to be a different kind of tree, you have to be a different kind of seed. And in the same way that an apple tree cannot tweak its behavior and learn some new information, in order to start producing peaches. Neither will Nicodemus or neither will we be able to start doing less bad things and start doing more good things in order to change the nature of who we are enough to see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. You must be a different seed. At the core of who we are, before we are born again, is dead. At the core of who you are, the very center of who you are, until you are born again, you're dead. You're apart from God. Nothing short, as Jeremiah will tell us, nothing short than a new heart will do. There is at the core of us an emptiness. It's called death. Your very heart, your core of being is corrupt and needs to be made new. Why? Because you don't have God at the center of who you are. You only have you, which is death. You are your own source of life. And no matter how good you are, how good you have become, you are no matter how good you become, you don't have God at the center, right? At the very core of who you are, what's your source of life before Christ? At the very core of who you are, what is your source of life before Christ? Yourself, yeah. Your own source of life. It doesn't matter how good you are if your source of life is you, right? It doesn't matter how bad you are if your source of life is you. At the core of who you are, what you need is something different. You need God. Sin is anything that we do absent or apart from God, good behavior or bad behavior. Matthew 7 says it like this, depart from me, I never knew you. And they say, but Lord, we did all these great things in your name. We did this, we did this, we did so many great things. It's one of the scariest passages, and he says, depart from me, I never, what? I never knew you. At the core of who you are, he doesn't deny that they did good things. 
He just denies that he knew them, that he denied their source of life. So Nicodemus, we could ask, how did you become so smart? How did you learn all the information that you know? How did you become so good at being so good? He got there through his own willpower and his own self-discipline. But the seed of government in his soul and in his heart was himself. So as long as Nicodemus was on his own source, his own source of life, he would only be able to do or be, only be able to understand what could be known from below, from earth. And he had the wrong definition and the wrong source of life, of where life is found. He would need a new birth, a birth where the very life of God would be put into him by the Spirit. Let me just say that again. In order for him to know God, in order for him to be able to see spiritual reality, he would need a new birth, a birth where the very life of God would be put into him by the Spirit, where supernatural life would, be, would regenerate him to an eternal life, where before there was only death. Unless this happens, Jesus tells him, you can't even see the kingdom of God. The word see here has a very, uh, this meaning of see is, is not just to be able to see something physically. In other words, I can see that there's a chair right there. I can see that you guys are sitting right there, right? But it's a, there's, there's a perception that comes with it. When I see something, it does something in me. When I see Rachel, I see something different than you do, right? When I see her, there's a reaction in me that is not in you. I hope. It better not be. <laughs> right. I don't just see Rachel. I, I have an experience with Rachel, and I see something that you that you don't see. I had car problems this past week, and I opened the engine, and I looked in, and guess what I saw? An engine. I didn't perceive anything. I just saw, well, the engine's still there. I guess, I don't, okay, I'm past you know, my ability to fix anything. If it didn't have an engine, I still wouldn't be able to fix it, but at least I would know what the problem is. Oh, there's the engine out there. Okay, that's the issue. All right. But when we, what we see, we can say this, when you look at something, what do you see? Does that make sense? If I see a dog, if I look at a dog, what do you see? When you look at a dog, what do you see? When you look at a dog, you might see Fluffy. And you're like, oh boy, here comes the dog. I get the pet. When I look at a dog, I might see Cujo. And we might be looking at the same dog, right? So something happens that's different in me than that happens in you. We have a different experience based on how we see and how we are perceiving, perceiving something. So until the new birth, the way by which you know something until the new birth happens, the way that you know something is actually corrupted. Are you with me on that? The way that you can actually even know something is corrupted. The way that you perceive everything is corrupted. Until the new birth, you are spiritually blind. Nicodemus knew the scripture, but how he perceived the scripture he was blind to. He could see Jesus sitting there, but what he perceived when he looked at Jesus was not the Messiah. Until a new birth, you are spiritually blind. Jesus starts his ministry by saying the kingdom of God is near. And the reason he's able to say that is because he was here. And we'll see that in, uh, in a few more weeks in the I am statements when he says, what you need is me. But without being regenerated, without the new birth, you won't be able to see it. You'll only be able to see things from a physical perspective, from your own perspective, and it won't matter how good you are. The very thing that Jesus is offering, we miss we were unable to see past our own kingdom. When Jesus is offering us him, we miss it because we're not able to see past our own kingdom. Our perception changes over time. Our perception always changes over time, especially when we come into the new birth. Have you ever, I've done this before where I go back and there's books that I've read in my 20s by Christian authors and I go back and I read them today and they are totally different books to me than they were then. And I think, why didn't I learn this then? 
I even underlined things that were very helpful that for whatever reason they didn't stick. But in my 40s and then in my 50s, I go back and I read it and I go, oh, because my life perspective, my life is different. I can see things differently than I could see things before. My way of thinking and my way of processing things have changed. We see this all the time in our perspectives, right? Until you have kids, you think one thing about others when you see them with kids, right? You see other parents with kids, you don't have kids, and you think, when I'm a parent, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, right? <laughs> and then you have kids, and you're like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was wrong. Right? I've heard one guy talking about this when he's talking about the spiritual blindness. He goes, when you lose your glasses, you've lost two things. If you've been in one of my DNAs, you've heard me say this. When you lose your glasses, you lose two things. One, you've lost your glasses. And two, you've lost the means by which you can actually find your glasses. This happened to me not long ago. I put my glasses on the bed, and I went in to wash my face, and I came out, and I couldn't, you know, it doesn't take long for me to forget where the glasses are. And I was like, I have no idea where my glasses are. And the way that I could actually find my glasses, I don't have that means anymore either. When Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, they lost two things. They lost life. They lost their source of life. And they lost the means by which they can even define what true life is. They are left in their own uh, sources of life being themselves. They have a bad definition of life and they have a bad definition of death. And what do I call life and what do I call death? When the check engine light comes on in my dashboard, I call that death. (laughs) When the car runs well, I call it life. When I speak in church and I don't get nervous, I call that life. (laughs) I'm not experiencing life right now, by the way. So... When I am super nervous, I call that death. What is it that I see? You might be doing pretty well in the kingdom that you call your life, but it's not life. And the invitation is for us to come into real life. The issue is in spiritual death, we call all our physical reality, we call that our life. And if we could just change that, things would be better. Until you are born again, you can't see what real life is. You cannot see the kingdom of God, he says. Which kingdom you see is determined by which kingdom you are from. Do you see your kingdom or do you see his kingdom? Which kingdom you see will determine what your DNA is. The culture, when you're from the heavenly kingdom, the culture is different. When the check engine light comes on, what do I see? I see death. Not an opportunity to put his life on display. All right, verse 5. Verse 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So already we're saying your perception of, you can't even see the kingdom of God, you can't even see spiritual things. But as we get into this part, he says you cannot, unless you're born of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You must be born again. Not only can you not see the way back to life, you cannot enter it without a new birth. When we talk about new birth here, we're talking about a new identity. You are born into a family. John chapter 1, John tells us that to those who believe in God, he gives the right to become children of God. You are given a new identity. Your identity is now as one of his child. Nicodemus would have thought he was already entitled to be a part of the kingdom, but he needed a new identity, an identity that can only be created in you by the regenerating work of the Spirit. Verse 8, it says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus asks a really great question. He says, How can these things be? Here he is, the teacher of the law. 
the teacher of the Jews, a guy that's very well educated, very well behaved, and he says, how do these, how can this be? It seems that he's realizing that there's nothing that he can do to earn his way in the same way that there was nothing he could do to earn his first birth. Verse 10, Jesus answered him and said, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, listen, this is very important, Jesus said. I'm saying to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the son of man. It's a very interesting phrase that he uses right here for himself. It's one that he will use pretty often. But the Son of Man is something to remember in Daniel chapter 7 is something that Daniel says. He saw the Son of Man, and the Son of Man is going to be given dominion. He will be given a kingdom that will never pass away. And all people from all tribes and all languages will come and serve the Son of Man. Nicodemus, I think, would have caught the reference right away from Daniel chapter 7 to realize that Jesus is telling him, I am the Son of Man. This is me. I'm the guy that Daniel was talking about. And Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Jesus shifts at this point to an explanation that maybe Nicodemus would be very familiar with. In other words, I'm not getting anywhere with, these, uh, with this birth thing. I'll give you an illustration that I think you would be familiar with from the Old Testament. In verse 14, he says this. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus here is referring to an event that happened in Numbers chapter 21. Uh, the, the children of Israel and most of the adults had just won a great battle, and they were coming off this high, but then immediately they begin to sin. And in their sin, God is uh, not happy with the sin, and he sends the fiery serpents, and it starts biting, biting them, and they get the poison from the serpent. And now there's many of them, it says uh, many of them perished, many of them died. And so they cried out, and they're like, we were wrong, we're sorry. And they call out to God, and they're like, please save us, please rescue us. So uh, God tells Moses to make a serpent out of a bronze and put it up on a, on, on a pole. And anyone that would look at the serpent would be healed. They wouldn't, they wouldn't, be, uh, they wouldn't die from the poison that they'd been inflicted with. Anybody remember what the sin that they did was? Anybody remember the sin? They just won this great victory. Now they're back. They're moving towards the promised land and they sin greatly. What was their sin? Not great guess. I love, I love the direction you're going. Another, it wasn't that they worshiped something else. That would be a great sin. It's not that they didn't give him the glory to the battle. It's another great, that would be a great sin. Here's what it was. Ready? They didn't know how to answer the preacher when he asked questions from the scene. Their great sin. <laughs> you're, going, you're going good. Here's their great sin. They were impatient. They were impatient. They started complaining and grumbling about the sermon from the Sunday morning. No, they, they were just, they were impatient. That was their great sin. It says they were impatient and started grumbling. So God sent fiery serpents among them, started wiping them out. And in the poison that was in them, the way that they would uh, be healed is something that was really interesting. A symbol of the curse of the poison that was in them that brought the curse to them would be put up, and the very symbol of the curse would actually be the thing that would heal them. 
And this is an illustration that Jesus is giving to Nicodemus when he asks, how is it possible to enter the kingdom? How can this be? And Jesus says this, I am the one, I'm the son of man. And when the son of man is lifted up, you will look to me. The only one who is able to judge the sin in you, remember what Daniel said about the son of man? He's the one worthy of dominion. He's the one that's gonna be given a kingdom. He's the one that everyone's gonna bow down and worship. And when that guy, that son of man, which is me, Jesus is saying, the only one who's able to judge sin in you, the only one who's worthy to bring wrath against sin would be the one who will take the wrath of God in your place. Jesus rescues us from the curse of our sin. What is our sin? Our absence of God, us being our own source of life. Jesus rescues us from the curse of our sin by becoming the curse for us. So how is this new birth possible? This is what Nicodemus is asking. And Jesus says to him, look, look at Jesus, look at me, see me lifted up and believe, live, receive new life. The word here, uh, believe, that is used by John often, I think it's used about 250 times in the New Testament, John, or through the Gospels anyway. John uses it over 100 times. He says that the reason that he wrote his Gospel is so that people would believe and to receive eternal life, that they would receive a new life. And so this word here, to believe, means to place your confidence in, to entrust yourself, to commit yourself. If you grew up in church and in youth groups, you probably heard the old illustration, Chris. I don't know if you've ever given this illustration. But the word believe here is like sitting in a chair, right? There comes a point when you're sitting down where all your weight, you entrust your weight to the chair, right? You're committed at some point in the sitting down. You rest in the chair. Your full weight is there. If you've ever done a ropes course or anything like that, there's a moment where you have to go and you have to trust that the rope is actually going to hold you and you have to lean back all the way, like if you're going repelling or something like that. I remember one time I was, I was in this church. We were doing this uh, vacation Bible school thing. We had these high ceilings, and my character was going to drop onto the stage from the ceiling, and I was going to drop through these ropes. But the guys who rigged it up, they were very knowledgeable about this, and they said, okay, they rigged it all up, and I'm up in the rafters of this church, and there comes the moment that we're practicing, and they're like, okay, this is the moment where you're going to drop. Here's the cue. I get the cue, and I'm supposed to drop. And I didn't drop. <laughs> And it was a good thing. It was probably, they were like, hey, what's, are you okay up there? And I was like, yeah. All right, the rope's got you, right? Yeah. Okay, drop. No. <laughs> right. Do you believe it will work? Yes. Then let go. No. The part of my brain that could understand what should happen was not compatible with the part of my brain that could let go of the platform that I was supposed to let go of in order to drop into this. These guys were smart. They knew what they were doing. They said, we know what we're doing. We did it right. And I said, I know you do. And they said, let go. And I said, you're idiots. <laughs> You're not as smart as I think you are. That part of me that believes and that can trust in that moment didn't have the ability to do that. The place where this type of belief is held, the Bible often refers to as our heart. It's the seat of our being. It's not the same place where our ability to retain information is held. Whatever a man believes in his heart, so is he. Nicodemus didn't have an intellectual problem. He didn't have a scripture memory problem. He had a heart problem. That was not, he had a heart that was not compatible with the kingdom. He had the wrong DNA from the wrong seed. He was trusting in the wrong source of life. His belief was in his own ability to make life work. And without a new heart, without a new birth, a spiritual birth, you only have what your nervous system tells you. My nervous system said, don't let go. You can only know from a physical perspective. My son Eli is, uh, wake up Eli. My son Eli is uh, training to be a pilot. <laughs> I'm talking about it. Uh, right now, and so every time I hear about a plane crash or read about a plane crash, I go talk to him and want to know, like, do you understand why this plane crashed? What did that pilot do wrong? Do you know what the pilot did wrong? Do you know you're not going to do that wrong? 
And I just read an article this past week about a plane that crashed, and this guy was flying through clouds, and he took the plane, and he dove it. Uh, is that the right word? He dove it? He dived? He dove it? I don't know what the word is. He went right into a lake, and it killed all six people that were on board, and they were investigating it. And what they determined uh, in the crash is that he went in because he was disoriented in the clouds, and there's all kinds of technical words. So I went to Eli and asked him, why did it happen? How could it happen? And because he's my son, he got to draw a race board out, and he got a, a model airplane, and he explains really well to me lots of great things about why that happened. But one thing, and I'm not going to get this right, Eli. You can go ask him more questions about this later. But in your brain, in your ear, in the tubes that are in your ear, and the liquid that, you know, the fluid that is in your brain and all that, when it gets disoriented, that's your equilibrium. And so when you can see the horizon, everything is stable inside your body, right? But when you can't see the horizon, the sensations that you feel when you're in the plane, you're not sure exactly what's going on outside if you can't see outside. But your brain tells you that you can know what's going on because your brain thinks where the horizon is. So even though this guy is going down, his brain is telling him that he's going up. And so his brain is saying, you're going up, you're going up, you got to stop going up, you need to level out. And so to level out, what is he doing to this? He's going down. So instead of pulling up, he's going down the whole time because his brain, right? And he said the problem is that once your brain is dizzy or off, even though you can see the instruments that are in front of you, it's hard to trust them because you only trust what your brain is doing, right? I can relate to that. Do I trust the instruments? He said you have to trust the instruments. When I trust the kingdom of God versus I trust the sensations that I feel. What would have, been hard, would have been hard for Nicodemus to realize up to this point was that he had been inflicted with a poison of a snake and that he was already dead because he was trusting the wrong things for life, because he had the wrong definition of life. His whole body and his mind told him that he was good, even though he was pitched down, right? And I can relate. I can think that I don't really need a new heart to give me life. I just need a better environment. I just need better circumstances, better people around me. I just need more willpower. I need to try harder next time. Maybe if I become a missionary, that'll get me in. That'll be good. That's got to work. I need more information, better knowledge, more books. And I'm not sure God is good for this. I better take it from here. And there is in me a stubborn belief. There is a stubborn belief in me that believes that I can arrange my world in such a way that it will give me life, that it will work if I could just get the right combination and when something goes wrong, my equilibrium is thrown, and I grasp harder and harder just to make things work. And here's what Jesus is saying. You cannot get through striving what only comes through surrender. You cannot get through striving what only comes through surrender. The invitation this morning for you is the same invitation that Jesus was holding before Nicodemus, and that is a new birth to be born again. How? Look. See Jesus. See him lifted up. The word repent has the same idea of seeing differently, thinking differently, perceiving differently. See differently, perceive differently where real life is. It's in a relationship with God as your source of life. Look to Jesus on the cross and see and believe that he is there to take from you the poison of sin that inflicts you from birth and receive new life and new birth that places his very DNA himself into your life. Jesus didn't go to the cross just to cover up your bad days and give you the ability to have more good days. He was lifted up to take on himself the curse of our sin, the sin of making ourselves our own source of life, absent of God. Jesus took on himself our sin and gives us true life. We're going to close. I just want to give you a couple of thoughts of 
what I believe happens when you come to the cross, when you can actually see with spiritual eyes Jesus and what he's doing on the cross. I think one thing that happens is the same things that we see that's happening in Daniel. One is it moves us towards faithfulness, the courage to remain faithful, but it also moves us towards humility. When we stand at the cross and we see him for who he really is and what he has done for us, it becomes impossible to stand at the cross and then turn from the cross and look at other people and say, now you owe me, and you owe me, and you're wrong, and you're wrong, and you owe me, and you owe me, and you owe me. Does that make sense? There's a humility in us that says to others, I want you to see as well. At the cross, we realize and we release others from anything we believe they owe us. If I see from my own perspective, maybe I can get things right. And when it works, I actually feel condemnation for others instead of humility. Or if I fail, I feel condemnation for myself and I just work at trying harder. But I never become a life giver. I never become one that says to others, look, you've got to see Jesus. So maybe you're here this morning and you've been a Christian for a long time. And maybe you're like me and you see in your own life ways that you still hold on to instead of trusting God as your source of life. My invitation to you this morning is look to Jesus. Or maybe you're here this morning and you never have fully seen Jesus as your source of life. My invitation to you is look to Jesus on the cross and receive life. This morning, we're going to do communion as we always do as we come to the Lord's table. We have an incredible opportunity to remember and celebrate and rejoice in and receive Jesus broken body for us on the cross where he receives our sin. His blood poured out for our righteousness where we receive his righteousness in our place. And before I pray for our time in communion, I just want to give us a minute and give you an opportunity just to pray in silence. I'll give you about a minute. And I would say, search your own heart. Where is it that you have latched onto yourself or your own source of life? Where are those places that you would say, I need to look at Jesus and see anew? his life that he's done for me. And after about a minute, I'll pray, and then you're welcome to come. Those who have a new birth, who have been born again, please come and celebrate, receive, rejoice, remember.